Welcome back. I'm Shane McClelland. I'm Lori Gum. And these are the Q Files. In this special President's Day episode, we will examine what is arguably the most haunted house in America, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, also known as the White House. There is a long history of the sighting of ghosts, spirits, and apparitions of those who once resided within these famous and hallowed walls, and also the presence of those who would destroy it. Dr. Colleen Shogun, director of the National Center for White House History, gives three reasons for the fact that the White House has always been deemed haunted. Number one, our American literary traditions have always portrayed hauntings in the house and the home. It only makes sense that the most famous of all houses in the country would give birth to such tales of the supernatural. Number two, tales of ghosts very often involve a reckoning with tragedy, injustice, or simply unfinished business. The White House possesses all of those aspects and happenings in very dramatic historical form. Number three, the theory of Oakham's razor, a principle that, of two explanations that account for all the facts, the simpler one is more likely to be correct. Which means, in this context, that with all the endless, thoroughly documented encounters with ghosts in the White House, and many from very credible witnesses, then according to this principle, it is most likely haunted. But let's leave it to Harry Truman, the 33rd president, from 1945 to 1953, to put it most simply. In six letters to his wife, Bess, he wrote of the ghosts that he sensed around him in the White House. In one letter, he said, I sit in this old house, all the while listening to the ghosts walk up and down the hallway. At four o'clock, I was awakened by three distinct knocks on my bedroom door. No one was there. Damned place is haunted. Sure as shooting. Sure as shooting. The White House as we know it was, well, not always the White House as we know it now. Most of you already know how Washington, D.C. became our capital, at least if you're familiar with the song The Room Where It Happens from the musical Hamilton. James Madison and Alexander Hamilton are invited to Jefferson's Monticello for a fine feast and a grand political compromise. In the end, the capital city of their new nation will be situated on the Potomac River, politically and geographically, placing it in the South. Jefferson and Madison's home region, in exchange for the Democratic-Republican support of Hamilton's financial plan to build a centralized U.S. bank and economy. The passage of the Residence Act of 1790 to relocate the U.S. Capitol to Washington succeeded in Congress shortly thereafter. Our first president, George Washington, selected the actual site for the White House in 1791. It was then called the President's Palace, and soon, to placate a more populous democratic notion, would instead be called the President's House or Mansion. He proposed it be built on the high banks of the Potomac to escape the swampy marshland of which mostly composed the new city. Washington himself would actually survey the site and help design the building. And being in a location that essentially belonged to the southern region of the United States, bordering on Virginia and Maryland, it would be free and enslaved African Americans, many of them property of the congressional legislators themselves, who would build this edifice meant to represent freedom, 
democracy, and equality in the new nation. In 2016, Michelle Obama stated, I wake up every morning in a house that was built by slaves. She wasn't lying. George Washington laid the cornerstone himself, but died in 1799 before the building was completed and never spent a night under its roof. On November 1st, 1800, John Adams, the nation's second president, moved into the nearly completed president's house. First Lady Abigail arrived from the family's former home in Philadelphia a few weeks later. Upon arriving at their residence, Adams wrote to her, Before I end my letter, I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and all that shall hereafter inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof. Wow. Talk about wishful thinking. Abigail Adams would arrive at the White House to find that while Congress had allocated money to build the house, it hadn't allowed any money to furnish it, except for a solitary portrait of George Washington hanging on the wall of one room. In turn, the Adamses had their own furnishings delivered from Philadelphia to equip the mansion for family living. Although Abigail Adams was initially enthusiastic about the presidential mansion, she and the president soon found it to be cold and damp during the winter. She also noted that she had to hang their washing in an empty audience room. The Adamses would only spend five months in the house as they soon had to vacate the premises to make way for the new president, Thomas Jefferson, who would be the first president to spend his full term in the president's house. But it seems that in 1763, Abigail Adams had her own ghost story long before she and John entered the White House. Abigail wrote this to John a year before their marriage. Have you heard the news? That two apparitions were seen one evening this week hovering about this house, which very much resembled you and a cousin of yours. How it should ever enter into the head of an apparition to assume a form like yours, I cannot devise. When I was told of it, I could scarcely believe it, yet I could not declare the contrary, for I did not see it, and therefore had not the demonstration which generally convinces me that you are not a ghost. Maybe because she was reluctant to believe, or maybe because the darn laundry was such a hassle, Abigail Adams seemed to be a frequent visitor to the president's house. Sporting a cap and lace cloak, the ghost of Abigail Adams has been seen at times drifting toward the East Room, the largest room in the White House, and once, her laundry room. In these sightings, her ghost's arms are held out, as if bringing invisible laundry to the room to dry. President William Howard Taft reportedly saw her float through the doors on the second floor as if she was taking laundry upstairs. To this day, White House staff sometimes inexplicably hear the sloshing of water or smell lavender and wet laundry by or in the East Room. George Washington decided himself that the president's house should be built of sandstone. That proved very quickly to be a disastrous decision as the exterior of the building began to erode and crack in less than a decade. And then in 1814, during the War of 1812, the house was set on fire by the British, nearly burning it down. And as James Madison, the fourth president, and First Lady Dolly moved back into the presidential house after the siege, the charcoal from the flames covered the outside walls. To remedy the blackened and crumbling exterior, layers upon layers of whitewash would be placed over the deteriorating and discolored stones, so much that eventually in 1901, 
Teddy Roosevelt officially named it the White House, as we know it today. Even now, every four to six years, a new layer of whitewash is added. There's an obvious metaphor there that I am sure is not lost on any of you. And to this day, the ghost of an unnamed British soldier from the War of 1812 is often seen carrying a torch on the grounds of the White House. After British troops set fire to it, it was discovered that a British soldier had passed away in his efforts to destroy the building. His spirit still even sometimes wanders the halls, torch in hand, as though looking to finish the job. And Dolly Madison herself was particularly said to haunt the Rose Garden. She's best known for reportedly encountering two gardeners during the Wilson administration a century later. First Lady Edith Wilson asked the two to move the fabled Rose Garden, which Madison had created and nurtured. It was said that when they attempted to relocate the garden, the gardeners were reportedly met by an angry ghost of Dolly. Today, the Rose Garden remains where Dolly Madison wanted it, and where Jackie Kennedy reimagined it into a glorious delight. Well, until Melania, anyway. The first ghost to have been seen in the White House was Willie Lincoln, the 11-year-old son of President and Mary Lincoln, who died from typhoid in 1862 while the family lived in the residence, and was seen by members of the Ulysses S. Grant administration in the early 1870s. The Lincolns were overcome by grief at the death of their young son, particularly Mary. Her African-American seamstress and confidant, Elizabeth Keckley, would say that Mary was, quote, an altered woman. She never crossed the threshold of the guest room in which he died or the green room in which he was embalmed, end quote. Mary is also said to have had over eight seances in the White House Red Room in order to connect again with her dead son. Lincoln, it is said, attended several of these seances. Mary would say to close friends that she could feel Willie with her every day and that he visited her at night, sometimes with her other deceased young son, Eddie. Quote, He comes to me every night and stands at the foot of my bed with the same sweet, adorable smile he has always had. End quote. Lincoln, for his part, also profoundly experienced the continued presence of his son. One afternoon, he asked Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase, Do you ever find yourself talking with the dead? I do, ever since Willie's death. I catch myself involuntarily talking to him as if he were near me, and I feel that he is. It is also said that on two occasions, Lincoln visited Willie's tomb in Oak Hill Cemetery in Georgetown and had the lid of the coffin removed so that he could gaze upon the face of his son. Willie's ghost was also seen by members of the Taft administration in 1911. They called him The Thing. President Taft's military aide, Major Archibald Butt, wrote to his sister Clara, The ghost, it seems, is a young boy about 14 or 15 years old. They say that the first knowledge one has of the presence of the thing is a slight pressure on the shoulder, as if someone were leaning over your shoulder to see what you might be doing. President Taft ordered Butt to tell the White House staff that the first member to repeat stories about the thing would be fired. And as late as the 1960s, President Lyndon B. Johnson's college-aged daughter 
Linda Bird Johnson Robb claims to have seen the ghost of Willie and talked to him. Mary Lincoln would also claim to hear Thomas Jefferson playing the violin in the Oval Yellow Room and say, My, my, how that Mr. Jefferson does play that violin. She also heard Andrew Jackson stomping and swearing and laughing down the hallways. The Rose Room, Jackson's bedchamber while he was president, is believed by some to be one of the most haunted rooms in the White House. There was also a reported old hickory encounter during the administration of President Dwight Eisenhower, where they could hear his loud footsteps throughout the house. But there are ghosts in the White House that are even older. Revolutionary War veteran David Burns did not want to sell his land that later became the home to the White House and continued to farm his land after the government's purchase, reportedly constructing an illegal fence across Pennsylvania Avenue to protect his crops. Once during one of several meetings that were held between him, General Washington, and Washington's staff, Burns is said to have remarked to the general, well, I suppose, Mr. Washington, that you assume people here are going to take your every grist from you as poor grain. But what would you have been if you had not married the widow Custis? He was referring to the fact that George Washington came from proud but modest stock and had married the enormously wealthy Mrs. Custis. Washington, known for his ability not to become riled, lost his temper and stormed out of the house never to return and refusing to meet with Burns again, calling him that obstinate Mr. Burns. President Washington would win in the end, however, and Burns's land would be the site of the new president's house. In the 1940s, President Franklin D. Roosevelt's valet, Cesar Carrera, heard a voice as he stood in the yellow oval room. When he turned to see who it was, the voice said, I'm Mr. Burns. He was also heard again in the Oval Office, in 1947, when a reporter told a security guard during the Truman administration that, while standing in the yellow Oval Room, he heard a whisper which said, I'm Mr. Burns. Around that same time, a White House guard reported that he heard a voice call out from the attic above the Oval Office, I'm Mr. Burns, several times. The guard assumed that what he was hearing was the voice of Truman's Secretary of State, James Burns, but learned that Burns was out of the country at the time. Although Mr. Burns has not been heard from since the 1940s, I am sure he would take some pride in the fact that his is the oldest ghost to haunt the White House. He's still pissed, and one could say, understandably. When they initially finished the White House, it came with a third-floor attic, which could only be entered with the aid of a ladder. It was generally used for storage space and even possibly as a room for Zachary Taylor's slaves. But in 1927, there was a major renovation which turned it into a more acceptable living space. And it was that renovation or that upheaval that seemed to bring forth the dead. The ghost that now seems to live there is the specter of our ninth president, William Henry Harrison, who died from pneumonia in 1841, having only served 32 days in office. The ghost of Harrison can be heard in the attic, seemingly searching for something as he rummages through the stored items and forgotten articles. He has even been seen once or twice as his ghost takes on a blue hue, and he can be heard coughing and hacking, no doubt from his perpetual pneumonia. Some attribute his death to the curse of Tippecanoe, which was placed on Harrison after the Battle of Tippecanoe in 1811. 
This was supposedly placed on him by Tense Kwatawa, the brother of Shawnee leader and warrior Tecumseh, who was killed at the battle. Of course, there is no historical record of this and merely hints that Native Americans were fodder, once again, for media and historical sensationalism and racism. But that aside, it is still a strange phenomenon that has seemingly caused deaths of presidents while in office who were elected in years divisible by 20, starting with Harrison and most recently ending with John F. Kennedy. The tale of this 20-year curse is pretty incredible. Here's the rundown. 1840, William Henry Harrison died of pneumonia. 1860, Lincoln, who was assassinated. 1880, Garfield, who was assassinated. 1900, William McKinley, who was assassinated. 1920, Warren Harding died of a heart attack. 1940, FDR died of a cerebral hemorrhage. And 1960, Kennedy who was assassinated. The next 20-year president, President Reagan, was elected in 1980, and an attempt was indeed made on his life, but he survived, maybe therefore breaking the phenomena. Proof being that George W. Bush, elected in 2000, had no such problems at all except for that shoe. We, of course, heartily hope the same for President Biden, elected, of course, in 2020. But kind of creepy, though, huh? And to make the odd even odder, Lincoln's eldest son, Robert Lincoln, was physically present at the assassinations of Garfield and McKinley, the next two 20-year presidents to follow Lincoln. And although he wasn't at Ford's Theater when his father was assassinated, he was at his bedside when he died. Robert Lincoln himself recognized these coincidences. He is said to have refused a later presidential invitation with the comment, No, I'm not going, and they better not ask me again, because there is a certain fatality about presidential functions when I am present. Harrison's vice president, John Tyler, took over his term as president in April of 1841. His first wife, Letitia Christian Tyler died in 1842 of a stroke, becoming the first first lady to die while her husband was in office and making Tyler the first widower to hold the office of the presidency. In 1844, President Tyler and an entourage, including wealthy New Yorker David Gardner and his daughter Julia, had cruised the Potomac on board the new steam frigate USS Princeton. During the voyage, the Princeton fired off its new cannons in salute as it sailed past George Washington's former home at Mount Vernon. At the time, Tyler was below deck, raising a toast. The cannon exploded, killing Julia's father and several others, including members of Tyler's cabinet. Tyler rushed up to the top deck just in time to catch Julia as she fainted at the news of her father's death. After the ship docked, Tyler whisked Julia off to safety in his arms. Thereafter, her admiration for him developed into love and, in April 1844, the 54-year-old widower president, John Tyler, married 21-year-old Julia Gardner. She would be the youngest first lady in American history. Often, and over many years, the ghost of John Tyler has been seen in the White House Blue Room, perpetually proposing to his dear Julia. But as you have probably guessed, it was Abraham Lincoln himself that is most often seen to haunt the rooms and hallways of the White House. Lincoln has been called the most mystical of presidents, 
and Lincoln himself recorded many spiritual and paranormal events that happened to him when he was alive. He claimed to have encountered his own doppelganger in a mirror at his home in Springfield, and often had prophetic dreams that he believed were messages from the other side guiding him. The person, it seems, most haunted by Lincoln's ghost was Lincoln himself. Ward Hill Lehman, a close friend of the president's, wrote down what Lincoln told him on an evening in early 1865, shortly before his assassination. About 10 days ago, I retired very late. I soon began to dream, and there seemed to be a death-like stillness about me. Then I heard subdued sobs, as if a number of people were weeping, and I thought I left my bed and wandered downstairs. I arrived at the East Room, and before me was a catafalque on which rested a corpse wrapped in funeral vestments. Around it were stationed soldiers who were acting as guards, and there was a throng of people, some gazing mournfully upon the corpse, whose face was covered, and others weeping pitifully. Who is the dead in the White House, I demanded of one of the soldiers. The president was his answer. He was killed by an assassin. Moreover, members of Lincoln's cabinet recalled that, on the morning of his assassination, the president told them he dreamed of sailing across an unknown body of water at great speed. He also apparently revealed that he'd had the same dream repeatedly on previous occasions before nearly every great and important event of the war. Lincoln's ghost would be seen many times in the White House. The first person reported to have actually seen Lincoln's spirit was First Lady Grace Coolidge, who said she saw the ghost of Lincoln standing at the window in the yellow oval room staring out of the Potomac. Theodore Roosevelt claimed to have seen a spectral Lincoln in the White House. A number of staff members of Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration claimed to have seen Lincoln's spirit, and on one occasion, Roosevelt's personal valet ran screaming from the White House, claiming he had seen Lincoln's ghost. Eleanor Roosevelt never admitted to having seen Lincoln's ghost, but did say that she felt his presence repeatedly throughout the White House. The First Lady's secretary once reported seeing Lincoln in the Northwest bedroom, and he was sitting on the bed, pulling his boots on hurriedly, as if he had somewhere important to be. One of the most notable sightings came in 1942, when Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands was staying at the White House and allegedly heard footsteps outside of her White House bedroom and answered a knock on the door, only to see Lincoln in a frock coat and top hat standing in front of her. Consequently, she fainted. President Eisenhower once told Press Secretary James Haggerty that he was once walking down a hallway when he spied a figure coming down the hall straight toward him. After a moment, he realized it was Abraham Lincoln. According to President Ronald Reagan, the Reagansons' dog, Rex, barked frantically at the entrance of the Lincoln bedroom and subsequently refused to enter. President Reagan began to seriously consider the presence of a spirit inside the Lincoln bedroom when his daughter and son-in-law reported seeing an apparition there on more than one occasion. And yet, this one is the best. During World War II, the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill paid a visit to his allies in the White House. After long days spent discussing the war with President Roosevelt and his wife Eleanor, Churchill liked to retire to his bedroom and soak in a hot bath. On one such occasion, a naked Prime Minister emerged from his bath signature cigar in hand, and was startled to see a figure leaning on the mantelpiece in his bedroom. 
The transparent man was none other than President Abraham Lincoln, apparently deep in thought and paying no notice to the naked head of state in the room. Shocked but still witty, Churchill remarked, Well, Mr. President, you seem to have me at a disadvantage. Lincoln's ghost smiled to himself before vanishing. Churchill spent the rest of the night in a bedroom across the hall and refused to sleep in that bedroom ever again. And yet there is another more disturbing tale of the ghost of Annie Surratt that revolves around Lincoln. Mary Surratt was convicted of playing a role in Lincoln's assassination. She was later hanged inside Fort McNair on July 7, 1865, the first woman ever to be executed by the United States government. Residents and visitors of the White House have sworn to have heard the ghost of Annie, Mary's daughter, banging on the front door, begging for the release of her mother. And if you want to learn more about the ghost of the Lincoln funeral train, check out our episode from last season entitled Ghost Train. And there is this. The story of the demon cat dates back to the mid-1800s, when cats were brought into the basement tunnels of the United States Capitol building to kill rats and mice. Legend states that the demon cat is one of these cats who never left, even after its death. Its home is supposedly the basement crypt of the Capitol building, which was originally intended as a burial chamber for President George Washington. According to the legend, the cat is seen before presidential elections and tragedies in Washington, D.C., allegedly being spotted by White House security guards on the night before the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln. The cat is described as fully black and the size of an average house cat, but witnesses report that the cat swells to, quote, the size of a giant tiger, end quote, 10 feet by 10 feet when alerted. In the 1890s, the cat is said to have inexplicably vanished when some Capitol Hill guards fired their guns at it and another supposedly died of a heart attack after seeing it. The last official sighting of the alleged demon cat was in the late 1960s. And just recently, Jenna Bush recalled the time she and her sister may have encountered the undead while living in the White House during their dad's, former President George W. Bush's, time in office. The sisters were in their shared bedroom when Jenna's phone rang. It woke us up in the middle of the night, she explained. We had a fireplace in our room, and all of a sudden, we started hearing, like, 1920s piano music, as clear as day, coming out of the fireplace. To make things worse, it wasn't a one-time thing. The next week, we heard the same thing, but opera, she said. Even Michelle Obama claimed to have heard such strange sounds outside their bedroom that they would occasionally get up and walk down the hall to see what was going on. They found nothing, and several times even left their bedroom at night after being so disturbed by the strange happenings. Michelle also claimed that she and her family would get the sense of a ghost gnawing at their feet, as if trying to eat them from the bottom up. Sounds more like the Republicans to me. Historian Jeff Bellinger reminds us, a ghost is just history, demanding to be remembered. And so we hope you have enjoyed our little spectral tour through the White House. We also know that some presidents leave their ghosts behind long before they die. It may well take years to get the last one out. This show is produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Until next time, friends. Be weird, stay curious. These are the Q-Files.